coming straight from the cockpit. It's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, once again, I am the fucking pilot back in the can with another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. And again, via the magic of the internet, I've got a couple of cool cats on the other end of the line to talk some old stories, shoot the shit, and find out what they got going on. Uh, So tell me, who the fuck are you guys and what do you do? So um, I'm Sydney Williams. And I'm Barry Williams. And currently, we are touring the United States in a van that is old enough to buy beer. Uh, talking about hiking and feelings and enjoying the great outdoors. Talking about hiking and feelings and the great outdoors in a van old enough to vote. So That's you're correct. so it's exactly what society expects people to do. Uh, yeah, we gave the big middle finger to the American dream and decided to make our own. Is there such a thing as the American dream anymore? I'm pretty fucking sure that thing died. I think it's all up to us and however we want to make it because the one that I was uh, promised growing up and all the steps I was told to take in order to be happy and healthy, wealthy and wise, uh, that shit didn't work. So we decided to write our own story. Yeah, it sounds like a good goddamn idea. Uh, I've kind of taken a similar path. (laughs) <laughs> for sure. But wait, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Besides the van and stuff, I want to hear all about this. But uh, obviously, this all got started uh, um, with the podcast and stuff. is all about extreme sports, more skydiving than anything else. And that's how I know both of you guys. And that's uh, actually how you met, correct? That is correct. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. How did extreme sports start for each one of you? Uh, where did you decide you wanted to do something a little off the wall? Well, I was uh, actually living in Manhattan at the time, selling technology to banks. Jesus. Circa, y- circa Y2K, you know, prevented that whole meltdown. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, and one of my customers actually was like, hey, you want to go skydiving? I had no interest whatsoever, but I figured the company was going to pay for it. The, you know, the, the, uh, I figured I'd go. And then I went and I got down. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> You mean you can actually make a living doing this? And uh, so I went from the Upper East Side of Manhattan to the woods of Maine in a trailer at Scott Ave, New England. Awesome. In about a year. And, you know, the, the irony of the whole thing is, like, uh, I used to work at one um, oh, right across from the World Trade Center. And, and uh, one of my customers was actually uh, Canna Fitzgerald, which that's the, the business that one of the planes directly went into. So if I didn't start skydiving, you know, there's a good chance I would have been in that building that day. So whoa, it's kind of kind of a weird, so weird thing. Skydiving saved my life. Skydiving <laughs> saved your life. Counterculture, go, man. That's fucking. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you what. I've had a number of people that had the whole real world jobs going, and then just uh, by happenstance went out and made that first jump and said fuck it to the whole thing. And that's my favorite kind of. That's how I got started. Story. I love it. Yeah, absolutely yeah. love it. Yeah. Well, Congratulations and and uh, yeah. welcome. I'm so, glad. And I was oh, go for it. No, I was just gonna say. I'm. I'm. Which pill did he take? The red one or the blue one? <laughs> I think I took them all. Awesome. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. So yeah, and then I was you know a professional skydiver for about sixteen years, seventeen years, something like that. Nice, nice, and and uh, did a fair amount of traveling with that as well. I'm guessing. Yeah, I was down in Florida, Deland, Sebastian. Skydiving. Well, I started skydiving New England, Sebastian, Deland. And then we met in Chicago in 2010, and then uh, we went from there. Was it the standard uh, um, fun jumper to packer to shooting video to tandem type of thing, or did you go a different route? No, I actually went – I I never got my tandem rating. Good for Um, you. Yeah. Well <laughs> too smart for that. Fuck uh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. I you know, I got my coach rating and did Skydive University, was a campus director for Skydive University down in Florida and you know, did the AFF thing and AFF, you know, designated evaluator. Um and then I just kinda got into the management perspective of, you know, managing schools and, you know, mm. really kinda taking teaching uh skydiving to a new levels i guess so sure. i was running schools in you know uh new england uh chicago and then on to elsinore very cool so, very cool so you yeah. got to pretty much go coast to coast yeah nice yeah well sydney how'd yep. you get your start um well i did my first tandem back in 2005 when i was working at walt disney world because 
Disney cast members got a discount at Skydive uh, Space Coast in Titusville. Okay. So I did my first jump and I landed. I was like, I'm going to be an instructor someday. (laughs) And then I went home and told my parents. They were like, fuck you. You're going to college. And I was like, okay, fine. Because, you know, college gets you a job, which gets you money, which gets you the American dream. Right. So I put my skydiving dreams on hold. And then I did another tandem in 2010 when I was down in Austin for a conference and ironically enough, I jumped out of the CSC pack in Austin because they had it leased for the winter. Mm. So I um, actually jumped out of a CSC plane before I ever went to CSC. Oh, wow. And after that second tandem, I was living in Chicago at the time, but I was jumping in Austin because I was down there for a conference. So when I got back to Chicago, thanks to the magical powers of Google and perfectlygoodairplane.com, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> right. I found Chicago. Chicago land. And then I did another tandem Memorial day weekend, 2010. So it's like my, if I was still jumping, it would be my, uh, nine year skydiving anniversary, I suppose. And then, um, sh- after that tandem, which I did with our, our good old buddy, Mr. Bickle, um, I, I shout signed out up to, for AFF. shout out to Eric Bickle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, uh, I signed up for AFF like right after that. And it's actually, it's really cool the way that um, I got my start in skydiving because I was making like just over 10 bucks an hour living in downtown Chicago um, at a marketing firm, PR agency. And we had a program internally that was called, uh, I can't even, oh, uh, No Boundaries or something like that. And I pitched to have them pay for my AFF because I wanted to be a licensed mm-hmm. skydiver because I saw that at the time they were still doing that jump for a cure sure. big win series. And so I had found pictures of that. And one of my colleagues that I was working with had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And so I was like, I want to get licensed so I can eventually go do these big ass <laughs> multiple hundred ways or whatever. <laughs> I didn't realize like the progression necessary for that, but that was my goal was like, sure. I want to do jump for the cure in honor of my friend who just got diagnosed. So Um, I won and they gave me, uh, $2,500 and an extra week off of work to go pursue this. So my AFF was paid for, um, and I got my license. I, well, that's how Barry and I met. Barry taught my first jump course. So you dirty bastard, you dirty bastard. Yeah. Well, no, he's like the opposite of a dirty bastard. So the story goes, (laughs) I will tell my version and then Barry can chime in with what actually happened. But, um, The Chicago Blackhawks had just won the Stanley Cup and my jump court, my first jump course was scheduled for Friday evening because that's how CSC did some of their stuff is like if you come out Friday evening, then you jump Saturday morning after you get the course done. Hmm. So they were coming in town. The Blackhawks were getting ready to do the parade. And I was like trying to get out of work as soon as I could to get out to the drop zone to avoid all the traffic. And I got this Facebook message from this dude named Barry and he was like, hey, um, I run the school at Chicagoland Skydiving Center. If you're able to get out here sooner, um, we can get done faster. And I was like, okay, cool. Sounds great. I was like, that's kind of weird. Like what excellent customer service. Right. And so <laughs> I, uh, rolled up to CSC and as soon as I like, and this was in Hinkley. So like you pull up in the gravel parking lot and then there was like that fence made out of the little, like, uh, old, like railroad ties or whatever. Sure. And so I walked over that. And then I went like feet knees face in the courtyard, just like just straight fell down. And I was like, this is not the best first impression I've ever wanted to make. I'm pretty sure this sport requires some level of body awareness and I'm here falling on my face. Um, so you could say that I fell for Barry before I met him. Nice. And <laughs> uh, so the whole time that we were doing my first jump course, um, it was a Friday night. I was... I'm an active listener and I like to confirm that I'm listening by saying, uh-huh and nodding my head a lot. So at one point I was like nodding and saying, uh-huh a lot. And Barry's like, are you actually listening or are you just nodding and saying, uh-huh? I was like, no, I'm actually listening. I'm proving to you that I'm a studious person. And so then like I got all of the questions right on my test, except for one, it was the fastest jump course he's ever taught because I'm fucking brilliant. Boom. And uh, the next day we had weather. So like I had to wait another week to go jump, but he says I was giving him googly eyes the whole time. I call it active listening, but TBD. <laughs> well, first off, I like that you had to say, um, just bad weather for a day. It's fucking Chicago. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> bad weather for years. Um, Barry, was she giving you googly eyes? Yeah, of course. That's what I figured. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, for sure. I was, I was, I was giving you googly eyes. That's how you and I ended up living together. <laughs> oh boy. 
Actually, I don't even remember how we ended up being roommates. I think it was more along the lines of, hey, fuck, this guy needs a roommate and this guy needs a roommate. And I think we shook hands like at the place. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think I, I remember meeting you on the couch, <laughs> you know, like in the in the, you know, hangout area in the in the hang or whatever. Yep. And he was like, hey, he needs a roommate. You need a roommate. And it was like done done yeah you know yeah and it was pretty good too that was those were actually some fun times right around the time uh, you and i met and started working at csc in, in sydney when you were out there jumping those were some fun times yep for sure we that to... old like farmhousey barn thing in big rock that was a party town oh yeah, yeah. oh absolutely no it was those were good times i <laughs> i definitely enjoyed that shit and i was enjoying the hell out of flying as well it was nice for me because i was i was for the first time not jumping full time in years so it was it was pretty cool so yeah. you uh you you both or Sydney you took to jumping quite well and and got super super active not just in the jumping side but you were doing a lot of other stuff in skydiving as well weren't you you were organizing and doing all kinds of shit yeah so my first summer at CSC um when everybody started it's like you and Kelsey and Cicerelli and everybody were talking about going to New Zealand and I was like oh shit like you can't jump in the winter and everybody chases sunshine and I was like oh oh damn, this is the thing. And Barry was planning on going down to Texas. So the first thing I did was I started looking for jobs in Texas, like on the off chance that Barry would ask me to move with him when he <laughs> went to Texas. <laughs> I started looking for jobs because I was misprepared. So I went and I, uh, I interviewed for a company in Austin. And then around the same time, Barry was competing with um, Tom Starts. Brian Stupak, and they took one of his students, uh, Michael Perry. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Perry, who got, who went from like a license to a hundred jumps in a summer in Chicago, which as we all know is a feat within itself. Yeah, it is. And so they took him to nationals and after nationals, we went to, um, Colorado to go fly in the wind tunnel because for all the youngsters listening, you used to have to drive across state lines to get to a tunnel. <laughs> right. Yeah. There wasn't one on every fucking corner. Right. So we went out to Colorado, um, for a tunnel trip. And when we got there, um, Barry like couldn't move his arm. His neck was all fucked up. So apparently he was within millimeters of paralysis. Um, when we went to the hospital, they told him that if he had had like another heart opening or something weird like that, like his, uh, his vertebrae and his neck was obliterated. That's a medical term. Mm. And it was so compressed that like one more heart opening would have put him into paralysis. Mm. So not when good. we were there, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, that's not good. No. Yeah, definitely not. Um, so when we were there, we found out that, you know, he had to have neck surgery and I had just like gotten this job in Austin and now Barry wasn't going to Texas. So, <laughs> I moved to Texas without Barry and then Barry showed up, um, after like his neck was healed for a little bit and he stayed with me for a bit. And I was on the job in Texas for like maybe four or five months. And I had ordered a rig, um, through Doug at CSC and it had arrived. And so he was asking me like how I liked the rig, how I liked my new job. And I was like, Doug, if I'm being honest with you, man, like I fucking hate it down here. I'm working my ass off. I've only done two jumps since I got here. And that was half the reason why I moved here was a better weather B I'm making more money. So I should be able to jump more, but none of those were true. If I had my way about it, I'd love to come back and do your marketing and social media and, you know, events at your drop zone. Mm. And he was like, Oh, well, yeah, let's do that. Just let me know what you need to get paid and let's make it happen. And so I was like, whoa, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> like, like I totally pulled that pitch out of my ass like in the moment. And now all of a sudden this guy's like, yeah, come work in my drop zone. And so I did. And I decided to quit my job when we were down at the Z Hills boogie in 2010 going into 2011. And then I went back to CSC for the spring and opened the new drop zone in Rochelle with uh, the whole team there. And started doing events and marketing and PR for um, CSC. And that was a position that didn't previously exist. So that was fun in and of itself because a lot of people had a lot of opinions about the girl with 75 jumps doing all of that. Sure. But um, it was one of the best summers of my life. And then we ended up coming out to California for the same reasons like needing to chase sunshine. And um, then I started doing all of that kind of stuff for Skydive Elsinore as well, which was uh, I was a very small fish in a very big pond. It's kind of Elsinore. Yeah, yeah. Elsinore is definitely uh, on the upper end of drop zones, especially in regard to size, for sure. Yes. 
Well, yes. I mean, it's but you honestly, the the whole Chicago winter kind of thing. Yeah, you can only get through so many of those if you're from warmer climates originally. Uh, I, I think oh. I lasted just over four years, and that was about as much as I was ever going to be able to handle. Yeah. So Barry, the blown out neck. Um, what was, was it a, uh, one jump? Was it a series of jumps? And how the fuck did you not know that you like were missing pieces of your neck? Oh, I knew it. <laughs> um, uh, no, I had a, I had a snapper of an opening. Um, I can't remember who packed it. Um, but somebody else packed my rig, which, which is not common. I generally used to pack for myself if I could. Sure. Um, I just had a really hard opening and the riser actually, uh, just hit, hit the back of my neck and snapped it down. Oh, um, I have it on video somewhere. It was a, it was a nasty opening. So, um, I jumped all season on it. Um, you know, um, and then I went to nationals and it was, it was bad enough that I couldn't even, you know, walk in from the landing area with my helmet on. Oof. Because the the pressure from the weight was brutal, and when I was creeping at nationals, I I was like literally face down in the in in you know, in, in the ground <laughs> right. because I head. So I knew it was bad, but I didn't think it was that bad. So yeah, we woke up uh, in in Colorado, and I I couldn't move my arm. And uh, I mean, they, I was in the in the hospital, and they gave me all courses. Uh, a bunch of painkillers like morphine and dilaudid and all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, and I was standing up cause I couldn't, you know, move my head. Sure. And they're like, you, you need to sit down or you're going to fall down. I'm like, I can't. And they're like, well, we legally can't give you any more painkillers cause it'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, you need to do something because I mean, uh, this is bad. So yeah, they, I had emergency surgery, man. Oh man. And, what yeah, the, the, f- the, go ahead, go ahead. The disc, the disc was blown out. It was, and the the medical term was obliterated. Yeah. I didn't even know it was an actual term, but Jeez. yeah, it was pretty close to being paralyzed. You know what the fuck is it about? Uh, and I, I'm sure it's all extreme sports athletes, or maybe just athletes in general, that makes us push past a level of pain that no ordinary person would ever think is okay. I mean, yeah, you just this, keep this going. The sport now, yeah. <laughs> well, see, I had a not nearly as bad as you, thank goodness, but. Uh, uh, I had had a, a blow up uh, on a canopy years and years back, uh, and I remember the jump vividly. I've got video of it as well. And you know, this is back when you had the heavy camera helmets that almost ripped my head off on a hard opening. And uh, uh, anyway, long story short, a couple of years go by, and I ended up having to get an X-ray for shoulder problems. And uh, the doc says, "Yeah, well, we're not seeing anything in your shoulder with the X-ray, but just out of curiosity, when did you break your neck?" And my response was, <laughs> oh, I, "I didn't." I've never broken my neck. And he's all, uh, yeah, you did. Here's a fracture here. And here's a fracture here. And I'm like, oh my fucking God. (laughs) That explains a little bit. So, all right. Yeah. I broke my neck. That's great. Appreciate that. (laughs) I'm like, well, should I do anything about it now? He's all, no, it's healed now. You got lucky. I'm like, all right, cool. Well, shit. Wow. So this, this surgery, was that the end of jumping for you? No, <laughs> well, they, they made me take six months off. So I just, you know, rubbed a lot of beer on it. Fair enough. And, you know, um, and then, yeah, went back to jumping, uh, six months later. So pretty much just took the, the winter off. Nice. And then spin rolled around in, in Chicago and God. started jumping. So you spent, uh, spent the, the winter as T-Rex, uh, and then, yeah. uh, <laughs> and I say, that's B-Rex. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. B-Rex. <laughs> Any, anybody that knows Barry just laughed because, um, and if you don't know Barry, uh, when Barry's had a few beers, maybe a lot more than a few beers, uh, Barry ends up accidentally doing a great impression of a little T-Rex because both the hands come up and the arms get real short and he kind of slouches forward and just stumbles around like a T-Rex and it's the funniest fucking thing ever. Um, B-Rex isn't making too many appearances these days, but yeah. We, yeah, hey, we are all getting older, aren't we? But that's what the stories are for. That's one of the reasons <laughs> we're. It's so cool we survived all the stupid shit because now we've got all the stories to tell that we can tell without any shame whatsoever because we lived. Damn straight, right? Oh, I get a lot of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, I, there, I was and should have been and didn't, and so. All right, so you're both jumping in uh, in Chicago and and Sydney. You're <laughs> quitting jobs and starting jobs, and uh, but you end up out in uh, in Elsinore, and I'm assuming you fell in love with it. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. So 
I had the opportunity to step in after Melanie Curtis left and pick up where she left off with events like Chicks Rock, Bridge the Gap, some really cool existing events um, that were just like notorious in the industry for being incredible. Bridge the Gap for newer jumpers, Chicks Rock for supporting women in the sport. Sure. And sure. we had the opportunity to bring back some old events that they used to do back in the day, one like Dueling, Doozy, Dueling Disease, where we would take off from Elsinore and land at Paris and then take off at Paris and land at Elsinore. And so fucking Paris jumpers and... Yeah, it was so fucking cool. So Paris jumpers and Elsinore jumpers would alternate where they land, which drop zones they land at. And it was a really cool way to like integrate the two communities and do some fun competition because they're so close to each other. Like you can see both of the jump zones on drop, uh, both of the drop zones on jump runs. So it was, uh, it was so much fun. And yeah, so I did that, um, for a while we, uh, reinvigorated the Elsinore Excel program and really, that was the program that was uh, catered to A-licensed jumpers to get them on the drop zone, feeling comfortable, meeting new friends, and safe, organized, smaller skydives. Sure. And that was so much fun. And that led to me doing um, – we started the Elsinore Excel Championships, which was a two-way competition for newer belly flyers. And after a season of doing that, that led to me doing my first four-way team. And then I did four-way for a couple of years before I ended up um, retiring from the sport. Nice, nice. Uh, well, and especially at a drop zone like Yeltsin or having programs like that for newer jumpers to keep them from getting just lost in the mix and sitting in the corner, too scared to ask anybody to jump and basically going out and doing a bunch of solos and then quitting the sport because they were bored or, you know, just not invited in. It's fucking awesome to be able to do something like that. Yeah. And when you have somebody like Barry running the school and I mean, like you witnessed what he was able to do at CSC with their student program. Um, he did the same, made the same improvements for Elsinore and really drove student retention and all that stuff. So to have Barry teaching them and then feeding them to me to keep them here. And then I could feed them to the more experienced organizers as they, you know, evolved out of two ways. It was just, it was such a beautiful cycle for a new jumper to go through that, I mean, like the community that we were able to build in the, in the time that we were there was absolutely incredible. It reminded me a lot of the first two summers at CSC where we had all of Barry's kids running around. Sure. It turned into that kind of thing at Elsinore as well. So it was just, it was a really cool um, chapter of our lives for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Well, and especially uh, with as a short amount of time as you had been in the sport, you dove into skydiving in so many angles. I mean, you were even writing for Blue Skies for a time. I was. Yeah. I had a column for uh, newer jumpers too. So I, I really leaned into um, my inexperience and just kind of rolled with it because it's funny because everything that I wrote for new jumpers was stuff that I wish I had been told or stuff that Barry told me that I was hopeful that other jumpers would benefit from. And at the same time, I was friends with like Hannah Betts, Travis Finagi, Andy Malchiotti, all these like world champion skydivers. So like, it was a really interesting balance of like keeping my eye on the prize. Cause I wanted to be a world champion skydiver as well. And I was in community with people like that, but also trying to remember what it's like to be new. Sure. And looking back on it, I wish that I had felt more comfortable being new because I was so jazzed about competitive skydiving that all I wanted to do was be a world champion. And I had a, I had a, portion of my time at Elsinore where like that was my only focus was four-way which I loved and also like I wish I had embraced my newbiness a little bit more and just kind of rolled with it instead of feeling like I needed to overcome my newbie status in order to feel valuable on the drop zone yeah well but that's that's part of why the the stuff that you were writing was so valuable to other people was to help get them past going through what you were dealing with Exactly. Which yeah. is fantastic. Well, it's funny too, because you and I actually started writing for the magazine at roughly the same time because you were my sounding board and proofread probably the first <laughs> dozen articles that I wrote uh, yeah, for the magazine. True. And uh, it wasn't so much that you were proofreading for, for spelling and grammar. It's you were proofreading to see if it was too over the top. Is this too, <laughs> is this too fucking foul? Is this too <laughs> fucked up? Have I gone too far in this article? And I don't think you ever gave me, uh, oh, dude, you should not try and 
print this. <laughs> well, now I think like if I, I wonder what my reaction would be if I read it now, because now in some ways I feel like the curmudgeon old feminist lady who's like, drop zones are a toxic environment for women. Sure. Like, I'd be really interested to see what I thought about all of that stuff now. But at the time, and I'm sure even today, like your writing was so fucking funny. And I just, I remember sitting in the barn or whatever and reading stuff with Barry and being like, this dude, like you're such a good writer. And it was, so, I felt like, and you were the pilot and like everybody loved you. And so I was like, I feel really cool. Like I'm on the insider circle. <laughs> I'm the dude who gets to read the fucking pilot stuff before anybody else. <laughs> it was so funny because uh, uh, I thought about this before the podcast because uh, um, you are absolutely an in-your-face feminist nowadays. And not that you weren't back then, but you're definitely a lot more outspoken than you were back then. And I've, <laughs> I've thought about some of the articles that I gave you to read and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is this is pretty fucking hardcore to be giving to a dyed in the wool feminist. <laughs> probably probably not the best stuff to have a read and then I thought about it and I went, well, but a lot of the stuff that I've written isn't they're not going to be a lot of feminist fans for some of my writing. No, and that's fine. You're not going to make friends <laughs> with everybody. No, There's no. There's time and place for it. Oh, hey, I've I've learned to cope with the fact that not everybody likes me a long time ago. I'm just fine <laughs> with that. And certainly not everybody likes my writing. I've I've gotten more than a few letters that were not so uh, uh, nice about what I had written. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, in a conversation with Laura and Cola from the magazine, they told me about the blowback that they got for an article that I wrote shortly after the whole beginning of the Me Too movement. And my very positive take on uh, empowering women and how badass they are in the sport, but they got a shitload of blowback because the first person to write in the magazine about Me Too was a dude. Yeah, well, yeah, that's fair. Even even if your content is great and you're making sure that like you're giving voice to the other half of people to jump, it's yeah. Oh yeah, I can see why that. Oh yeah, no, no, no. That that article didn't do them or me any favors. And the funny thing was, it literally didn't even cross my mind when I wrote it because the entire article was basically, yeah, I the list of women that can kick my ass in skydiving is just too long for me to put on paper. That's basically what it was, and it just didn't go over well. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> hey, but I tried. <laughs> so yeah. now both of you have said um, that um, you're, you're doing this tour and stuff, but this tour does not include skydiving. Is that correct? That's correct. There is no jumping involved. So you are you both officially retired from jumping? We are. I retired at the end of 2014 when I left Skydive Elsinore and Barry retired um, after he left Elsinore in 2015. Now, when you say retired, is it uh, retired as in you're not working in the sport or retired as in you don't think you'll ever have a rig on your back again? I personally don't see myself having a rig on my back again, and I sold mine. Um, Barry gave me the sage advice to wait three years, and so I waited about two and a half, and I sold my gear in um, 2016, I believe. And so now it's being lovingly jumped in New Zealand. Awesome. Awesome. Nice young lady named Christina, as far as I know, unless she sold it. But yeah, she's got my rig. Okay. And Barry, uh, uh, so you're retired as well, but do you see yourself jumping even just for fun? Uh, probably not. Um, just, you know, with my neck, you know, I kind of rolled the dice so many times in that sport that it was just, you know, I, you know, I had 8,000 jumps or something like that and zero cutaways. But, you know, I just like, I think I pushed it far enough where uh, I'm good. I think I did what I needed to do in that sport, and I think uh, I'm cool with it. Sure. Well, and you know, it was it was funny too. I retired for from jumping for a good four years. I didn't make any jumps, uh, and was very relaxed and comfortable with the idea of never putting a rig on my back again. Of course, I've ended up becoming a fun jumper again, but uh, I was never really a fun jumper in the first place. Uh, so for me, it was kind of like finding a whole new sport when I started just jumping for fun. No cameras, no tandem students, no AFF, just falling out of an airplane and being an idiot. Um <laughs> And, you know, and it's it's kind of funny that I had to do almost 11,000 jumps before I figured out how to fun jump, you know, so <laughs> it was definitely the long way around. Um, but I, I can definitely see how you can get to the point where you're like, all right, yeah, I kind of did everything I had to do. Uh, now, Sydney, what was, uh, what was the, the reason that you decided you were kind of done with jumping? Well, in 2014, um, that's when... 
so if you're a new skydiver, uh, when you lose your first friend, um, there's a couple of different ways that that can go. And for me, 2014 was the year that everybody started dying. Um, I stopped counting at 15 friends in the four years that I was in the sport. Um, but I lost way more than that. Um, but 2014 was the one that just really kicked my ass. Um, we had just come off a great first season with my four way team and we were going from intermediate to advanced. And in June, my team, one of my teammates, uh, jacked her knee on an exit. And then we were like, effectively we were done for the season. So we wouldn't be going to nationals in 2014. Um, and that was in June. And then in August, my friend Adam died on a base jumping trip in Idaho and he didn't make it home from that trip. Mm. When when he got, when he died, um, he was living, he had, we met, so Barry taught Adam how to skydive in what, eight days. Yeah. Something like that. He got his A license in eight days in Chicago. And then after we moved out to California, he came to California as well. And he lived with us when he first got out there. He watched Jezebel while we were on our wedding and honeymoon. And then he ended up moving up to Santa Barbara to do school and stuff. And so when he died, um, I, my teammate had like made some miraculous recovery with her knee injury. So when I found out that Adam died, I had the choice to go to his funeral or go to nationals. Um, I didn't have enough money for either one. So I told my team, I was like, sorry, like, as far as I'm concerned, we aren't going to nationals because that was the decision we made in June. And also my friend just died. So I only have enough money to go to one. So I decided to go to Adam's funeral. And when I got back from Adam's funeral and, um, a couple months later, like we did chicks rock and I found out after chicks rock that, um, my boss, who was also my skydiving coach, the entire reason that I moved out to Elsinore to begin with was to train under, um, his wings, as it were. Um, I found out that he was convicted of raping his 14 year old niece. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And so I, as a woman with an intact moral compass and somebody who, as the person who was doing PR marketing and events for that drop zone, um, I know how these things tend to blow out and I didn't want to be responsible for cleaning up that mess. Cause that wasn't part of my job description. Sure. So at the end of 2014, I left my dream job of working at one of the best drop zones in the country. Um, and I abandoned my hopes and wishes to be a world champion skydiver someday. Um, and I didn't know why I, why that triggered such a strong response within me at the time. I just knew that I couldn't be in that environment. And, um, that was the end of jumping for me. I was just like, I won. It's, it was, I was spending, I was fully sponsored by Skydive Elsinore. So even then, like between pack jobs and paying for coaching and paying for tunnel time, like it was a lot of money to be a competitive skydiver. And even with jumps being fully sponsored and having gear from incredible manufacturers, like I still couldn't, it was too much money for me to to be investing in something where if somebody like fucks their ankle up, then the whole season's over oh, yeah. or whatever. Oh yeah. So I was like, this is like, I just, I couldn't justify the expense. I couldn't justify, uh, once I heard about what my boss had done, I was like, I can't justify being in community with you, let alone spending money or paying you to coach me anymore. Um, so yeah, that was the end of it for me. Well, fair enough. And I mean, uh, it's not like you're walking away with regrets. You walk away, you walked away with eyes wide open. Like you made the conscious decision. Okay. This is, it's enough. It's so, Yeah, and I I don't think you really bailed on the dream. I think you just reevaluated the dream. Oh yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. But also like it was so bailing probably isn't the, isn't the right phrase, but that, that, whole situation just stirred up such a response to me that there was no other option for me. Like I just, I was just like, Oh, okay, this is what this is. And I don't want to be part of it. So yeah, maybe not abandon, but yeah, it definitely shift in priorities and no backup plan to speak of. Sure. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know what we're doing next, but it's not this. Well, you know, it was kind of funny. I, and I don't remember how it was quite some time ago, but, uh, um, you know, every once in a while you do the, the Facebook check-in and say hi. And, and, uh, I think I had done exactly that. Your name popped up on the screen and Hey, how's it going? And, and, uh, it was a short and sweet conversation, something along the lines of, I'm not jumping anymore. And I'm a hardcore feminist now, by the way. And I went, Oh, Okay. I, you know, I always kind of assumed that you were always a feminist because you're a pretty strong-willed person in the first place. Um, so, <laughs> so that part didn't shock me. It's just a, oh, shit, done jumping, hardcore feminist. 
I yeah no hey I applaud the decisions you make as long as you're following you know your heart then absolutely and especially okay. considering the path that it's aimed you guys on first off on a much lighter note they legalized marijuana in California shit yeah they did that shit changed my life I was gonna say that led to a bit of an opportunity for both you guys didn't it yeah well I mean it was why I don't rub beer on my neck anymore. <laughs> You know, because <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. Well, I mean, even in the skydiving world, it was it was a weird thing because we we still got drug tested. And, sure. and at, at Elsinore, we actually had workers comp. So if you actually got hurt on a work job, everything was taken care of. Sure. But however, if you had, you know, weed in your system, you weren't going to get taken care of because, you know, still it's under FAA, which is federal government. Sure. And you're, you're kind of hosed, you know, but once they stop jumping you know, started, you know, we ended up getting our, our rec cards medical. or medical cards. So we didn't have to pay the taxes. And, uh, and you know, yeah, we started, what's that? You worked at oh yeah. And I worked at the dispensary for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember, uh, um, it was, I think shortly after they became legal in California, you and I talked briefly and you told me you were working at a dispensary. It's yeah. it's kind of funny because I've lived out of California and out of the states uh, off and on for so long now. Um, the whole uh, marijuana being legalized all over the place is all new to me. But especially as it gets bigger and bigger in the states, I'm jealous because I'm a horrible stoner. Like marijuana and I do not get along at all. Um, and unfortunately, uh, even though even if I was a good stoner, them legalizing it on a state level is never going to do anything for me because I hold a federal FAA license, and they are never going to okay that. Right. Which is fine. Which is fine. I, I would rather be a pilot than be able to smoke weed. Yeah, and, th- and that's the thing. Like with, with me and skydiving, it was like, you know, I enjoy skydiving more than – Smoking weed. Yeah. You know, so it was never a problem for me, but like, you know, dealing with pain, that's where the booze came into play. Sure. But now that, you know, that I, I don't have to get tested, you know, it's, it's way better of a, a painkiller because I still have problems with my neck and oh, of course. all sorts of problems. So. Well, that's life. So it is nice to actually use it as a medicine. Yeah. Because oh. you know, I personally don't like recreationally. It's fine. But, you know, I'm not like an everyday type of thing. It's like if I'm in pain and I need to sleep. There we go. Well, what is this? I've heard a lot about, um, what's it called? CBD oil. Um, uh, have you tried that? Does that stuff work? Fantastic. So that's, that's if I'm not mistaken, that's basically still taken from the same plant, but it takes, there's no THC in it, no psychoactive ingredients at all. It just takes away the pain. For sure. And I mean, you can have like hemp, uh, CBD from hemp and CBD from actual like uh, cannabis, you know, the stuff that gets you high and they take the THC out. But in all reality, you want a little bit of THC because they actually work together um, to get into your bloodstream. It's like a carry. THC is more of a carrier for the CBD to get you in. Okay. And it makes it more effective. So it's nice to have a little bit of THC in there. Um, Certainly something to think about as retirement starts looming for me because I'm going to be in fucking pain when I get older. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I tell you what, those, the topicals are incredible. Um, when I was in high school, I was diagnosed with PMDD, which is effectively like really bad cramps and extreme PMS. Um, and so they had me on birth control and Prozac to try to regulate the symptoms of that. Jesus Christ. And yeah, my cramps were so severe that my doctor told me, um, okay, well, when you start feeling like you're about to start having cramps, take four ibuprofen every four to six hours. Fucking hell. So I was, yeah. So I was like, just like eating those, like it was Pez candy sure. for, for over a decade. And then, um, once we got out to California and I was done skydiving and, um, I had access to, uh, medicinal cannabis, I got a topical for my cramps. And I tell you what, like the second I put it on, it's gone. I haven't taken ibuprofen in three years oh, wow. for my cramps. And it's like, yeah, so the topicals are insane. And as far as like muscle recovery goes, that's one of the things that it's the first thing we pack when we go on backpacking trips, because for muscle recovery, it's incredible. Like it just reduces inflammation, makes everything feel better. And for the backpacking trips where we're out in the wilderness for like days on end and hiking 10, 15 miles a day, it really, really helps manage the pain and enables us to continue going more than more so than before we started sure. having that. Boy, I, I wonder why Big Pharma doesn't like the idea of this shit being legal. No shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
that, that's not a threat to them at all, right? No, not at all. <laughs> it just wipes out like half of their product line in one shot. Yeah, basically. That's awesome. <laughs> so you guys uh, did the jumping and all of this stuff and, and kind of it ran its course for both of you. But now you're traveling across the country. Um, you're hiking and living in an old van and doing speaking stuff. So tell me all about that. Yeah. So after we got done with the, so the speaking tour stemmed from, uh, two hikes that we did across Catalina Island and Catalina Island is a island off the coast of Los Angeles, California. And it has a trail called the trans Catalina trail that spans from one end of the island to the other. And it's 38.5 miles. And we did, we hiked that the first time in December of 2016. And then we did it again um, for my birthday last year, which we're coming up on the year anniversary of the second hike. But after that um, second hike, I sent a message to the Catalina Island Conservancy, who is the entity that manages most of the land on Catalina Island as a land trust. Okay. And I told them, I was like, you know, I've been on this trail twice. It changed my life. Like I found myself. It helped me heal. Um, my body and my mind, if there's any kind of program that you have where you have trail ambassadors or you're looking to help promote, you know, the Trans Catalina Trail, I'd love to be considered for that. I just, anything I can do to help spread the good news about this trail I'm in. And so they're like, oh my gosh, we'd love to hear your story. And the first introduction that they made was to a woman who was the head of outdoor programming for the Southern California REI stores. Oh, wow. And REI sells a backpacking trip across Catalina Island. And we had, we had booked it ourselves and done it ourselves, but uh, REI was looking for someone who had done the trans Catalina trail to share their story, to help them sell more of their backpacking adventures across the Island. So we did, um, I called, we had a nice chat with the lady from REI and she was like, Oh my God, I love your story. I'd like to send you on a speaking tour around Southern California. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) Okay. And so, and I was just like floored. And so she jumps right into it and she's asking about like, what are my audio visual needs? And I'm sitting here, I'm like, I haven't made a presentation yet. Like, I just know what happened, but sure. Yes, of course. And she was like, okay, so what do you need? And I was like, well, if you want me to do a technical trail review, then I would want to have like a projector and I could show like the elevation map for the Island and talk about like the different parts of the trail. But if you want me to talk about my feelings and like all of that side of the story, um, then it would just be a lot of pictures of me, like goddess on a mountain type stuff, the aspirational images that, you know, lead to healing in the outdoors. And I, cause like I told her the whole story. So like the first hike, it was right after those two years, like 2014 and 2015 were some of the hardest years of my life for like Adam died in 2014. My friend Chris died in 2014. My uncle died in 2014. Um, I left skydive Elsinore for all the aforementioned reasons in 2015, Barry left skydive Elsinore and he retired from the sport. So I had just survived like two of the hardest years of my life. So I told them the whole story. I was like, here's all the people that died. Here's all the shit that happened between the two hikes. I was diagnosed with type two diabetes and then I lost 60 pounds into the trail again. So I told them the whole thing and it's very much about feelings and it's a very heavy topic. And so I was like, well, if you want a technical trail review, I need this. And if you want me to talk about my feelings, I need that. And so she was like, oh no, I want you to talk about your feelings. I was like, even like the rapey bits. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So we ended up doing three test dates in October of last year. Um, and they had never done anything like this before. Uh, they usually run programming on like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I said, well, could I speak on Friday night and then lead a hike on Saturday morning? Have you guys done something like that before? She's like, no, let's give it a shot. So she's like, I don't know how many people will show up on a Friday night, but let's, let's give it a go. Mm. And it was successful. People showed up, people came and hiked with us. We went and did three stops in LA in October. And then we did another round in January. And before the tour in January ended, we didn't have anything else planned. I was just like, I hope that they want to do more of this. And my contact knew that we had bought the van and that we were looking to go around the country and asked if we'd like to take this talk to REI stores around the country. And I was like, uh, hell yeah, yeah. let's do it. That's- so um, we've just been working with the local coordinators in each market to build a tour schedule. So it's we're kind of building the plane as we fly it, as they say. Sure. And we're currently confirmed through the end of sep- or the week after Labor Labor Day. We'll be in Chicago, 
And um, from there, we'll head over to the East Coast. So we're currently booking East Coast dates um, for the fall and then scooting over back across the southern United States, back to Southern California towards the end of this year, beginning of next. So doing one big loop around the country and really it's been amazing so far. We've been on this part, like we've been on the national tour since March. So we've been doing this for a couple months now, like fully on the road. Cause we were based in San Diego for the first two tours when we were doing stuff in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been in the van full time for six months now, wow. actually today, six months in the van full time. So now how, uh, have you got your, uh, site set on any other major hikes, uh, around the U S since you're covering coast to coast basically? Oh yeah. So, um, the way that the tour works is on weekdays, I speak at REI stores. Sometimes it's one talk a week. Sometimes it's three, sometimes it's, you know, whatever. Um, and then on the weekends following the speaking engagements, we host a hike in the local with the local hiking community. So Barry and I pick a hike that we want to go do in that region. And then we post it online. People come and join us and we all go hike and feel feelings or not. Some people don't feel feelings when they hike. Some people just want to go walk around. Um, but we're experts in creating a place where it's okay to talk about the stuff that we've been through. Um, because a lot of people just don't feel comfortable talking about the stuff they've survived. I didn't feel comfortable talking about the stuff I survived for almost a decade after it happened. And so it's just nice to cultivate a space where it's okay to not be okay. Sure. Well, and and, uh, when you're doing something along the lines of hiking, you get to, if you're the type of person that doesn't like to share or doesn't like to talk a lot, you get to avoid one huge roadblock for a lot of people. And that's eye contact. So I can, (laughs) I can walk that trail. I can look straight ahead and I can say everything that's on my mind is as long as you don't have to look somebody in the eyes, it's very easy to let it all out. But as soon as you've got a room full of people looking you in the eyes, it becomes a weight almost too invasive for a lot of people. So what an, what an amazing way to get people to open up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's something, there's something special about being out in nature. And for me, like the two hikes across Catalina Island, like I, I had always struggled with body image. I'd always struggled with losing weight. And it wasn't until the second hike across the island that I realized the root of all of that behavioral, all of those coping mechanisms, the root of everything I've ever struggled with was uh, a rape I survived 12 years ago. Mm. And in that discovery, I realized like, oh my God, I have this backpack on this like invisible backpack that's full of my trauma. And I call it my trauma pack. And in the unpacking of that, like, across the island, I was like honoring all the people that I had lost while we were skydiving and just like remembering their memory, remembering like the best times we had together and just kind of rifling through the list of folks that passed away while I was still jumping. And then after that, like I found confidence in my body. It's like, as we take out these, if if, like all of my dead friends were the sleeping bag in my backpack, like after I took that out, I found and created space for me to feel comfortable in my own skin. And then- as I was going up a mountain the next day, there were a lot of things about me that people said that I should change that I just physically can't. Mm. And so I worked through some of that stuff and reclaimed the parts of my body and my being that make me me. And when I got done doing that, like I felt lighter, like it's so as I was taking this heavy shit, this emotional shit out of my backpack, I was able to find confidence in my body, confidence in what I'm doing in this world, how I show up. And at the bottom of all of that was this thing called sexual assault. And once I uncovered that, then I had all this room to just really dig into who I want to be and how I show up in the world. And I understood why I showed up the way I did in the past. Mm. Um, cause I never told anybody after I survived that assault, the first person I told was Barry mm. and that was 11 years after it happened. And we had been together for seven years, married for five when I finally felt comfortable talking to him about wow. it. So It's just been, it's been a really great journey. Um, like that container for understanding the things we've been through, reclaiming parts of our story. Like for the longest time, I didn't feel comfortable talking about skydiving because I never made it to the podium. Sure. Like how dumb is that? And looking back, like how sad is it that I would just avoid talking about one of the best chapters of my life because I felt like I didn't meet some arbitrary standard that I set for myself. And now I'm like, yeah, bitch, I was a competitive skydiver. Like, did I medal? No, but like I was doing it. And just because I didn't, just because I wasn't the best and I didn't make it to worlds doesn't mean that I wasn't a competitor. Oh, uh, And so this container has really helped me reclaim a lot of the stuff that I just never felt 
comfortable owning because I wasn't the first or the best at it. Sure. So now you get to go back say, and take pride uh, in the fact that you've been a badass and denied it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, and it feels so weird. And, um, but the, the thing that you were saying about avoiding eye contact, like that is such a big part of it that I didn't even like, I know consciously when we, when we do this, that that is super helpful, but like ha- hearing you articulate that, I was like, that is a damn fine point about like what we're doing. Because when I was on the trail and there was nobody around me, like I wasn't on the internet, I wasn't scrolling through pictures that make me feel like I'm not enough or I'm too much, or like I need to buy that to feel validated or do this to feel important. Sure. In the absence of all of that messaging and all of those influences, like I found myself and I found out who I want to be, how I want to show up. And a lot of that was just having the space to do it. And now that I look back, like the fact that Barry wasn't just like sitting there with his hands on his chin, like, so tell me about your life. Yeah. And he space to figure that out for myself, then I could feel empowered enough to be like, okay, this is what I've been through. This is my story. And for moving on from this point forward, like I'm in control, I'm writing it. Like I'm a writer. How did I not know this? Sure. Like I literally can write my own story. And this whole chapter has just been like us having the biggest dreams we've ever dreamt, not judging ourselves for what we want to do, because that's a big one that stops people from like, finding progress in their life is they're like, I really want this, but like, do I deserve it? Sure. Well, fuck yeah, you deserve it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so it's uh, it's been, it's been really interesting to see how that goes. But like, again, none of that would have been possible without Barry's support because that was a very, like, that was a journey that I was doing by myself for over a decade. And it got me what it got me diabetes. It got me uh borderline alcoholism with how much wine I was drinking in the thick of it. Sure. Like I, to be able to be in a relationship with somebody who has provided so much support and so much space for me to find myself, I think is a testament to the kind of man Barry is and also what's possible when we reserve, like when we just withhold judgment and just create a space where people are free to figure themselves sure. out. Sure. Well, and unfortunately, we've lived in a culture for so long now where uh, broaching subjects like this uh, are, are I guess taboo is a good word to use where the people that suffered through it don't speak about it. And for those of us that never have, we don't hear about it. So nobody knows how to deal with it. Uh, nobody knows right, how exactly. to deal with it. That's, so it's, a, it's, that's such an important part. yeah, it's a big learning experience for everybody to go, oh, okay, fuck. Well, now I've just found out this information and I have no idea how to process it because I can't for the first time put myself mentally in their shoes because that could, that just wouldn't happen. Holy shit. Yeah. How do I deal with this? I mean, and what a cool way to, to start working through it when you're hiking across Catalina for Christ's sakes. Yeah, yeah. A, it, was a, it was a beautiful environment to do not it. Not a bad way to do it. Well, so you, you kind of traded off one extreme sport for another, so to speak. Not so much the hiking, but the soul searching, because that's some hard shit to do. Oh, yeah. It's the hardest work I've ever done, and it's the most rewarding I've ever done as well. And coming from a f- – coming off of – like. Every, for anybody who's listening who knew me while I was skydiving, like, I don't know how I appeared in skydiving. Like, I know how I felt, and I felt wildly inaccurate, like, in, uh, not inaccurate. I felt, like, wildly undervalued. I was so not confident in anything, but, like, I put on the face, and I was like, I'm skydive Elsinore. It's fine. But I really found the confidence on the trail because it was something that I could do for myself. Um, there wasn't any real cost associated. So it's most part like hiking is free unless you're, you know, you need to travel to get somewhere. But yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just been a really incredible experience. Yeah. Well, not to mention on top of all the, the, uh, working everything out in your head physically, you guys have got to be strong as bulls with all this hiking you're doing. Yeah. I mean, collectively. So between my, when I was diagnosed with diabetes, I've lost, somewhere between 60 and 70 pounds since my diagnosis and Barry's lost probably 40 or 50 just as a, uh, collateral damage of supporting me on this journey. Um, so collectively as a couple, we've lost more than a hundred pounds and we are both in the best shape of our lives. You know, it's kind of funny because, um, I hadn't seen pictures of either of you guys for ages. And at least in my memory, I don't remember ever thinking that you were heavy set, but then I saw a picture of you, um, a much more recent picture and went, holy shit, she's skinny as fuck. But I, <laughs> uh, but I don't ever, yeah, well, I, mean, 
I, drinking and eating your feelings uh, made me balloon up to be. I was uh, when I was diagnosed. I weighed in at one eighty nine on a five three frame, and at that point in time, I had been paddleboarding all summer, so I had probably lost ten or fifteen pounds. So I think at my heaviest, I was two hundred plus. Wow. Um, and what last time I went to the doctor, I was like one twenty nine. So awesome. like just a radical transformation. And the thing that's crazy about it is um, when I was little. My mom told me that I should be careful about what I eat or else I'll end up like her. And at the time, I was like, um, what does that mean? I was like, you mean I'll be like the coolest cheer mom? Um, you mean I'll be like the nice lady who would give the shirt off her back to somebody in need? Like, what is that? Why is that bad? And sure. what does that have to do with the food I eat? Sure. And so I was never like, they never taught me this and it was never explicitly said, but in, ob- in observation of how my family ate, we were always on diets, how mm. my mom talked to her when she went shopping. It was abundantly clear to me that bigger bodies are bad and smaller bodies are good. So I spent my entire life, even when I didn't need to be in fear of being fat, because that was the worst thing ever. Like my mom gave me the blanket warning at a very young age, sure. like do not get fat. And so it's been a really interesting experience going through this because I, I had always thought that on the other side of a hot body was happiness. Oh God! No. And through this process, I realized that every time I address my mental health, my physical health followed. Sure. So all of the weight loss came from resolving these little pieces of trauma that I had avoided along the way. And it was like, before this hike, I couldn't put it into context. I was like, why did I lose 10 pounds between Christmas and New Year's? Why did I lose 10 pounds between my sister's wedding and leaving my job. Like, why did I lose 10 pounds between this and this? And I was like, Oh, every time I healed some old emotional shit, the weight just like melted off my body and diabetes robbed me of my coping mechanisms, which were Ben and Jerry's and bottles of wine. So (laughs) if I wanted to be a good diabetic and like manage my disease, I couldn't go eat Ben and Jerry's whenever I got sad. I couldn't look bottles uh, look for the answers in the bottom of a wine bottle. So it very quickly shifted to like, oh, okay, address mental health, physical health follows, and happiness is a result of taking good care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So well, it was it was such a mind fuck, and I don't I don't know if that's something that men can relate to as much as women can, but like I was always told that I needed to be skinny, and once I was skinny, I'd be happy. Oh, I I think I mean guys have uh, the the you know the opposite side of the same coin. You know, uh, just different versions of what you're supposed to be, you know, right. You know, especially, especially, you know, (laughs) absolutely. Well, and nowadays with social media being the way it is, we're all fed that bullshit. So uh, I can't even imagine being a a 16 or 18 year old kid, male or female growing up nowadays. Fuck that. Oh my God. It's gotta be brutal. Fuck all that. Oh, no, no, no. So, um, are you guys going to do any of the, the monster trails? Are you going to go coast to coast? Yeah, so we're going coast to coast. Um, we did some great hikes in Yosemite, um, the hardest hike I've ever done, um, both elevation-wise and distance. So we did um, a hike to Eagle Peak, which if you've been to Yosemite National Park, um, you go up the Yosemite Falls Trail, and then you scoot over towards El Capitan. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so we did that, and that was the highest elevation gain we've done I've ever done in a day. It was like 13 miles and like some like 5,000 feet of elevation gain. Sure. And then we walked the entire Yosemite Valley floor, which was 23, almost 24 miles in a day. Um, and yeah, so we've got some plans. We're going to do some stuff up in um, Glacier National Park. We're going to do some stuff in uh, like up and down the coast. So everywhere we're going, we've got big hikes planned. Awesome. Well, if you uh, if you yeah. find yourself with some downtime in November, uh, hop on a plane, come hike to base camp with me. I'm into it. Yeah. Let's do it. Everybody's dying. Yeah. No, I know. I'm not going up the damn mountain. I'm just going to go up and watch and go, all right, one of these fuckers isn't going to make it. <laughs> as, as horrible as that is. What, too soon, maybe? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, November, uh, I'm going to go uh, do the hike to, to base camp. I promised myself I was going to see that hill in person for years and years and years. So I'm finally going to get around to doing it before I get too fucking old. Oh, yeah, dude. Good for you. Yeah, man. Got to do it. Got to do it. So now you're doing the REI tour and all that. How can people find out where to track you down? Is there a website, uh, Instagram, all that stuff? How do people find you? Yeah. So we're, um, hikingmyfeelings.com. We actually just launched our new website last week to celebrate our one year anniversary. So hikingmyfeelings.com has all the information and then we are hiking my feelings on Instagram as well. Awesome. That's fantastic. 
so they can go on there and they can find out uh, uh, where you're going to be speaking next, where the next hike is coming up. And I'm guessing you've got, have you got a blog on there as well? We do. Yeah. So we just got the blog um, up and running last week with a seven part series about the hike around Yosemite Valley floor where Barry and Sydney had a little bit of a tiff and Sydney learned how to hike by herself for a little bit and it does happen (laughs) grow and be an adult. And uh, yeah, so we do have the calendar up there with all of our confirmed dates so far and folks can subscribe um, to our email uh, list to get updates on when we post new dates because those are always being added as we go. And we absolutely do have a blog function and we're excited to be sharing more stories from the tour and from the trail. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. Well, I'm going to make sure we aim everybody towards the website and the Instagram so they can track you and uh, maybe come tap you on the shoulder, give you a hug from me and go hiking. I love it. Guys, it's been fantastic catching up with you. It's so cool to hear that you're on to the next adventure and just kind of going out there and being badasses. It's fucking cool. Yeah. Well, it's been rad chatting with you. It's been a hot minute. So, <laughs> Guys, awesome. thank you so good much. To to you. Yeah, great to talk to you, Barry, as well. Uh, I'm glad everything's doing good. Take care of that neck. Don't rub any more beer on that thing. <laughs> I'll try not to. All right, guys. Take care. All right. So hikingmyfeelings.com. You're going to want to hop on there to follow Barry and Sydney Williams as they cut across the country giving motivational speeches and taking people out on hikes and uh, talking about shit. Uh, For me, I am the fucking pilot, as always, coming to you from the can with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly in association with Blue Skies Magazine, which we already know is the greatest magazine in the known universe. Head over to blueskiesmag.com, subscribe to the magazine, get yourself some cool swag, write something amazing up and submit it to them. If I can write for these guys, so can you. If you're a badass photographer, get those snaps into them as well. They love putting cool skydiving pictures up. Also, if you've got anything to advertise, Blue Skies Mag is the place to do it. For me, you can always find me at thefuckingpilot.net. That's got links to all the different platforms for this podcast, as well as links to both the books that I've written, both the Fucking Pilot book, which is the previously uh, published articles for Blue Skies Magazine, and The Accidental Stripper, which, by the way, I'm working on getting out in audiobook form. So if you don't like flipping pages and you just want to sit back and listen, I'll see what I can work out for you. In the meantime, guys, thank you once again for joining me, Blue Skies. Have a great one.